Wow. <laughs> Those might be some of the harshest, hardest, most difficult words that I can think of in Scripture. Um, they're difficult to wrestle through. They're not easy to understand, yes? And so if I can simplify in one phrase what our author is saying to the church, what the author is saying to us, he's saying fake Christians never grow up. Fake Christians never grow up. Now, when you come to the church, there are three kinds of people that you're guaranteed to find. You can count on it. I can guarantee we have them here this morning. There are Christians. There are non-Christians, people who don't believe in Jesus, and people who think they're Christians but aren't. And fake Christians, whether they know they're faking it or not, never grow up. Now, before any of you tune me out, call me out, or maybe even burn me at the stake, um, why don't we start over? And I'd like to pray because this is, like I said, this is one of the hardest texts. And as a pastor, it's not easy. It's being faithful to God's word to wrestle through the warnings, but warnings are never exciting to give. If they are exciting, there's something going on in your heart. Um, You're looking forward to condemning people. Oh, boy. Um, So let's pray about this, okay? Father, we come to you, we rest in the authority of your word that you have spoken throughout prophets, throughout the past, and most evidently through your son, Jesus Christ, and you've given us your written word as a guidance in living out the gospel, your grace that bestows upon us and now calls us to live as Jesus lived, to rest into what Jesus has done so that we might know you better and glorify your good name here. Guide us in this passage Whatever is just ridiculous that comes out of my mouth, may it be forgotten quickly. But may we hold fast to what your word is saying here. Those of us who are far away, may it draw us near. Those of us who do not know you, may we come to know you. Those of us who know you, may we be drawn even closer because of the beauty of your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. By the power of his Holy Spirit among us this morning, working beyond our imaginations. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, not too long ago, I was flying back from seeing some family in Columbus, Ohio, and I had a layover in Atlanta. And during that layover, the flight got delayed, and so I actually had to stay in Atlanta in a hotel. Um, I was already pretty frustrated uh, because I wanted to get home. I had things I needed to get done, you know. Whenever our schedules get messed up, so do our attitudes many times. Well, mine was. And I was staying in the hotel, and it was about 1 a.m., and my fire alarm in my hotel room goes off. I was like, oh, great, another thing, right? So I get up. I'm, I'm sweating. I'm, like, freaking out. So I run to the door, and I look out, and nobody else is moving. I mean, there's not even a peep. Main, mainly, I couldn't hear anything because the alarm was so loud. And so I run back to the phone, and I call the front desk, and I, you know, ask the concierge, what is going on? And she goes, oh, you know, we're having some issues with our fire alarm. So nonchalant, right? We're having some issues with our fire alarm. They should be fixed here in the next, you know, few minutes. Well, they weren't fixed in the next few minutes. It kept happening almost every hour throughout the night. And the thing about alarms is that they're annoying. They're loud. They're obnoxious, right? What happens when you hear an alarm? You can't sleep. You can't really do a whole lot of anything else. They take over. 
And nobody likes hearing the alarm go off, even when you wake up in the morning and it's the alarm that wakes you up. You want to hit snooze, right? The reason it's so annoying is to hopefully kick you out of bed in the morning. And even though we hate alarms, (laughs) we'd rather hear our alarm than suffer the consequences of staying asleep in a burning building, right? And hear me this morning. No one necessarily is excited to hear what this text has to say. I don't know if I'm really, if I'm honest with you, excited to give it. It's not the nice and cozy by the fire text. You know, you've got your cup of hot chocolate. But it's the text that holds you over the fire. You know, <laughs> it's the one that shakes you up. I mean, the, the Bible contains some pretty alarming passages, and we have a choice to just brush them off or to listen It's not meant to just discourage us or annoy us, but it's meant to protect us. And some of of us this morning, we're faking it, if we're real. And we don't even realize it. Some of us think we're Christians, but we aren't. Some of us can talk the talk, walk the walk, but inside are dead. Some of us have been playing the nice little good Christian boy or girl our whole lives. But then one day, you wake up and you realize you were playing make-believe. We've never grown up. We've never really known Jesus. And fake Christians never grow up. And look, I know that sounds arrogant in our culture to say something like this. Um, Oh, I I know I'm not the judge of who's in and who's out. And that's why I've kind of included myself here. (laughs) You know, I'm talking about any single one of us, myself included. I mean, I could play make-believe, do really well in the pastoral profession. Many do. I could be known as the pastor, right? Have my name on a placard outside. And I could have you all convinced that I follow Jesus. I'm convinced right now that I'm following Jesus. But underneath it all, I could really just be doing it to feel better about myself and have nothing to do with God. Then through a series of bad decisions, throw it all away. And I wouldn't be the first pastor to do that, right? Many of us know stories of plenty of pastors who have done that. I mean, just this, a few, a few months ago, I got to meet the gentleman who controls our pests here. <laughs> um, not uh, wayward Christians. I mean, the, sorry, that was a really lame joke. <laughs> if I had a second service, I'd scratch that one out, okay? Just so you know. No, but he controls ants and mice and all that stuff. Helps us be a safe and very hospitable place. So your treats aren't shared by the animal kingdom as well. Um, but as he was here, I was checking some emails, and he came upstairs putting some traps in different places, and um, he says, you know, I used to believe all this stuff. And as a pastor, I go, oh, huh, what? <laughs> <laughs> Is he talking to me? You know, like, what's going on here? You know, I was in my, in my zone, whatever zone that was. And, and, and he goes, I even used to serve in my church as a youth pastor. Um, I, I thought I really believed it, and so I went to seminary, and I was working on understanding doctrine better and understanding how to care for youths better. And while I was there in seminary, I realized I never really believed it at all. It was all just a game for me, and so I just found up, I I gave it up. Because I've got multiple reasons for that, but I realized I was just faking it my whole life. Isn't that a terrifying thought? Wouldn't that wake you up like an alarm at one o'clock in the morning with, you know, a, a dry sweat, just overwhelmed? That's the point. And we should ask ourselves this morning, each and every one of us, what do we do? What do we do? 
Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not trying to fake it. You're not a Christian and you're very proud that you're not a Christian or you're at least okay with it. You're probably thinking, okay, come on, preacher man. What on earth does this have to do with me? And I have to admit, I really try to hear you. I try to hear your voice. Um, While I write, I try to think of how does God's word speak into people's lives no matter where they are in their journey? Um, whether you're, you love, trust, and obey Jesus, or you don't love, trust, and obey Jesus. And so as I thought about you this week, it is a little harder, um, because you're not really trying to fake anything. <laughs> you're pretty open and honest about it. And you've openly chosen not to be a Christian right now. But there's something in this for you as well, okay? I want you to hear this. First, a warning passage like this, it can help clarify what it means to be a Christian. You probably know some Christians. You probably have some friends who are Christians. That may be even why you're here this morning. And this will help you understand your Christian friends better, which is so beautiful. Um, If you really want to cultivate that friendship, you get to understand a little bit more about your Christian friends. Secondly, hopefully this will help clarify and give you a better educated decision on whether Jesus is who he says he was or not. Secondly, I know for those of you who have a hard time embracing Christ, one of the biggest reasons... It's because you've encountered so many hypocrites in the church. I've heard plenty of stories, having conversations with people explaining the reason they can't accept Jesus is because of many of his followers. Look, there are a lot of people who claim to know Jesus, a lot of people who claim to know Jesus. And they have more messed up lives than you do. And there are many reasons for that, and we could talk about that. But one of the, one of, one of the reasons is because some people are faking it. Some people aren't really Christians who claim to be Christians, and they may not even know it. Please don't judge Jesus by the worst of his followers. That's kind of like saying you hate fish because all you've tasted are fish sticks, right? It's like, that's not really fair to fish if all you've had is fish sticks. Well, similarly, I I hope you don't believe in Jesus, or I hope you believe in Jesus, but you don't disbelieve in Jesus because of hypocrites. Every theological position, every worldview has its hypocrites. And this will hopefully, this morning, give you better categories to understand that not everyone who says they're a Christian is really a Christian. But if you think you are a Christian this morning, I hope you listen to what these words have to say as if your life depended on it. Because this is life or death, folks. This isn't a lean back and relax moment. This is a wake up moment. Since the beginning of the year, we've been going through a book within the book. We've been going through the book of Hebrews within the book of the Bible. And this morning, our author is, he's warning us that fake Christians never grow up. And we're going to see three things, okay? The danger of stunted growth, the death of artificial growth, and how you can be sure of better things too. The danger of stunted growth, the death of artificial growth, and how you can be sure better things too. If you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles um, to Hebrews? If you don't have a Bible, we have some available on the flip side of the um, dividers there that are for yours. They're yours to take home, to own. And we are in Hebrews chapter 5, as Sherry read for us. Well, as we step into Hebrews, um, we need to remember this is a recorded sermon, um, a sermon to a first century urban Jewish congregation who's in the danger of drifting from their faith in Jesus. The author just previously 
Whenever we seek to understand a text, we want to understand its context so we don't take it out of context. And the author, he's speaking beautifully how Jesus has become our sacrifice, taken our sins upon himself. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands that we go through temptations. He's died on the cross. He's rose again. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father as our great high priest in the order of some ancient guy named Melchizedek. And before he can unpack what that means... He notices that some people are doing what some of you are doing as soon as you hear the word Melchizedek. <laughs> they start dazing out, like, who is this Melky guy? You know, like, what is, what's going on? And people begin to check out. And yes, as pastors, we can tell when you're catching up on your prayer time um, during the sermon. Um, and so what, is he, what, he, what he does is he starts to dive into Melchizedek and eyes are starting to glass over, glaze over. He stops mid-sermon and highlights the danger stunted growth, okay? Look with me at chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. This isn't from me. This is from God's Word, so this is where we look. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The leading cause of stunted growth is lazy listening. And the word dull here actually means sluggish or lazy. Um, the NIV translation interprets it as you no longer try to understand. We all know how we can audibly hear something but not really be listening, right? Um, for example, kids, when your mother says, and I remember this, uh, you'll get some ice cream if you clean your, your room. What, what do you hear? What's your reaction? Ice cream! Yes! And then mom goes, no, no. Not until after you clean your room. And then you hear the, ah, And then like the slumped shoulders and like the shuffling of the feet, right? This is a great example of selective hearing. You heard the whole sentence, but you only listened to the part that interested you. This is a great example of what happens when husbands wrestle with their wives, wives with their husbands, employees with their bosses, parents and children. And most of all, we do this with God. Selective hearing. It's lazy listening because we only listen for what we want, what makes us feel good. And conveniently, we forget the rest. We don't want to hear what God has to say about Jesus. We don't want to hear what God has to say about the gospel, how Jesus changes our relationships, challenges us to purity, transforms our attitudes at our jobs, calls us to self-sacrificial love in our marriages, and so we zone out in sermons and ignore picking up our Bibles. For me, I can zone out even when I'm writing sermons, thinking that this sermon's for everyone else but me. And so I, too, become a very lazy listener if I'm not careful. I do a lot of talking. (laughs) Maybe some of you wish I talked less, um... But if I never realize that God's also talking to me and I'm listening, then I too become a lazy listener and become stunted in my growth. Just like the first century church, some of us should be able to teach others about the truths of God's word, should be able to encourage others in the truths of God's word. But we've been dazing out for so long that we have to start over and be taught the basics all over again. And the longer we're in it, Lazy listening always leads to lazy living. 
hear me out. It's okay to be a beginner, okay? You don't have to step into your walk with Christ as an expert. But it's not okay to stay a beginner. Now, some of you might say, and I wrestled through this too, you know, for the rest of my life I will be a beginner of the gospel. And in one sense, that's very true. But in another very real sense, it it can become fake piety, (laughs) A great opportunity to excuse or ignore what the gospel is actually calling us to. Look at the end of verse 12 through verse 14. This is the picture he gives us. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The author, he gives us this grotesque picture of adults breastfeeding in one sense. Um, Rather, they, they didn't go to the grocery and buy their skim milk by the gallon, right? He's talking about adults who should know how to feed themselves, but instead they have to be fed. They have to have somebody else feed them all over again. They still haven't grown up in their faith to the point that they're not self-feeding adults. They haven't listened to God's word, and so they can't live it out. They can't discern what is good and what is evil. They should be all grown up by now. And check this. Remember, this is a first century urban Jewish congregation. And if this was that, their desire to stay at the elemental building blocks of the faith, is what he says, like the list he gives, repentance and faith in God, washings, the ceremonial washings and the laying on of hands, because those washings are plural. They're not necessarily talking about baptism, but ceremonial washings, resurrection from the dead and judgment, all of which are actually in alignment with early Jewish belief, interestingly enough. And if they don't move on from the basics, they'd never have to sever ties with Judaism. But the more they learned about Jesus, the more they realized they can't have it both ways. Jesus demands exclusivity in him alone. The old way has passed away. The new has come in Christ. And we can relate in one sense, can't we? I mean, we naturally drift towards decisions of comfort, towards ideas that enable us to have our cake and eat it too. Going deeper may mean pain. It may mean discipline. It may mean challenge and change. One commentator, he says it so well when he says, The intellect is not over-ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. The intellect is not over-ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. And so the author, he tries to rally this early church. He's trying to rally each and every one of us to move on to maturity, to grow up. Listen up, so we don't have to keep walking through the ABCs of the faith. It's time to grow up because beware, fake Christians never grow up. Never grow up. And so we have to ask ourselves, honestly, am I a lazy Christian? I have to ask myself that, and I need to pause and really think through that question. Am I a lazy Christian? Am I hearing God's word but not listening? Is God telling you something that you don't want to hear and you're ignoring it? And you just look and you desire to be cared for rather than digging into God's word for yourself. 
You just want to be breastfed the rest of your life because it's easy. Maybe not on the mother, as I know now with my wife and daughter, but it's easier for the recipient. Fake Christians never grow up. And stunted growth, this stunted growth that comes from lazy listening, that leads to lazy living, it happens at various points in our lives as Christians. This, the point isn't in this text to say that we're never going to struggle. The point isn't in this text that we're never going to persevere or wrestle with doubt and so on. But the danger, the absolute danger of stunted growth going on for too long is that it can reveal the death of artificial growth. The death of artificial growth. Look at chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Wow. There are those who have once been enlightened. They've heard the gospel story. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've partaken in communion. They've shared in the Holy Spirit as they watched the church, they felt the influence of love, joy, and peace that comes from the community centered on Jesus Christ. And they've tasted the goodness of the word of God preached and the powers of the age to come. They've seen transformation around them and yet they've fallen away. After all of that, they decided Jesus, no, he wasn't for them. Now, there are two predominant theories out there what's going on in this passage. In this theological Rubik's Cube, if you want to put it that way. Um, One, some believe that this is speaking of Christians who can lose their salvation. They had the real thing and they lost it. Others think that this is speaking of people who looked like Christians, acted like Christians, and talked like Christians, but they really weren't. The whole time they were fooling themselves. Now, with either interpretation, the result is the same. Some of us in here probably aren't going to make it, which is scary. And the shuddering thought is that it could be speaking of any one of us. So if fake Christians never grow up, what happens instead? Well, after going through the motions for so long, faking it, some will be exhausted by playing make-believe. Wow, if you're living a lie and it's not real, it's absolutely exhausting to keep up that charade. It really is. And so what happens is we become disillusioned with the real thing. Whether the fakers were coming to worship gatherings to find friends, to find business contacts, to get mental stimulation or whatever, after a while, if it's not centered in knowing Jesus and for Jesus, then you're going to fall away. You'll be asking the question, well, who needs the church anyway? Um, I mean, who needs Jesus when I can find these desires, at least semi-fulfilled in other places, but I don't have to worry about Jesus. He doesn't have to bother me at every time I get together with folks. And then after experiencing the beauties of the gospel and outright rejecting it, the hope for transformation, for true change is forever lost. It's kind of like an artificial plant that looks alive, but on closer inspection was always dead. You'll never change, is what this text says. And at least with a slow-growing plant, you have growth eventually. But an artificial plant never 
has a chance of life. The author says it's like putting up Jesus before everyone all over again and crucifying him. That's, that's brutal. With one hand, you partake in communion, and with the other, you nail his hands to the cross all over again. And it's here. Our author says of these folks some of the most terrifying words. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Impossible means what you think it means. Repentance means what you think it means. And hear me out. Jesus is always willing to to receive our repentance, but there may come a point in your life where you no longer can repent. The decisions you've made have hardened your heart slowly to become an artificial reality without any hope for change. And we have to be careful here because we can easily then come with judging eyes, right? Who's the artificial? We don't know who's hardened beyond repentance. So we keep praying. We keep loving. We keep sharing. For God deals with the heart. But as for our own hearts, as we look inside, fake Christians never grow up. And there will come a day, as we see in this little mini image that he gives us at the end in verse 7 and 8, where he will judge the fully grown and productive plants over against the thorns and the thistles, of which their end is to be burned, the text reads. And look, I'm not the guy who's on the soapbox on the corner with a bullhorn reading, turn or burn, you know? That's not really my personality. Um, I understand that in times past, God has used prophets to say really hard things in really abrasive ways. Do I question maybe that's the best avenue in our culture? Maybe yes, But what we see here is very real, that a judgment is coming. And those that are fake, their end is to be burned of judgment, whereas the productive plants will receive God's blessing. Now, this leads us to ask the question, am I fake? Am I fake? And some of you might know the answer to that question, and it's very uncomfortable to think about. You're coming for money, you're coming for friends, you're coming for business contacts, and God's on the peripheral. And what others are giving is at the center. When I was in elementary, I remember um, being at Vacation Bible School, and yeah, we had the flannel graph, if you're familiar with flannel graph. You know, it was the technology of the 90s. Um, And I remember the teacher was guiding us through a prayer on how to invite Jesus to be our Lord and Savior And at the end, the teacher asked, you know, who prayed? And I saw a couple of my friends' hands raise. So I was like, sure, you know, why not? In reality, I dazed out during the prayer. I wasn't paying any attention whatsoever. Um, And I knew all the right answers because of my household. But really, what I wanted was my parents' affirmation. I wanted to be accepted by my friends. I wanted to get some attention. When in reality, I didn't care anything about Jesus at that moment. None. It wasn't until years later it became about Jesus. It became about forgiveness and surrender to Jesus, for Jesus. And for some of you, you could be 20, you could be 60, and you're having that aha moment right now that it's never been about Jesus. Well, don't just brush that off. This is a time. Now hear this warning, this alarm for what it is to protect you from living the rest of your life as a fake Christian. 
And we're going to come back to this. But some of us, though, aren't sure. I know for me, I do hope my faith is real now, and I believe it is. Um, And yet I don't want to become a lazy listener with a lazy life and therefore be so arrogant as to think this passage doesn't have anything to say to me. Paul, talking to his protege, Timothy, says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God breathes it out through human authors to be about various purposes, one of which is to rebuke, to challenge, to warn Christians to continue to grow in their faith. And so I hope I hear this just as much as every single one of you hear this this morning, where really this passage, the people that it scares me the most about are those that have their arms crossed and aren't worried at all. This passage, it still kind of freaks me out, right? It should freak us out a little bit. And what's our reaction? It's to figure out a simple formula, A plus B equals C. And once we do that formula, then we don't have to worry about God anymore. And we don't have to worry about understanding him, growing and understanding him. The gospel is free grace for those who submit to Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ. But if it's just about a formula, then it's not about God. Now, I told you earlier when I was a kid, um, I was taught that if you just prayed the right prayer once, you'll never have to worry again. Just like a magic spell, now you're hell-proof, even though the rest of your life looks like it's hell-bent, right? And I've heard someone say once that it's like getting out your birth certificate to prove you're alive. Um, It's not that the birth certificate isn't helpful, but it doesn't prove you're alive. You could bring me a corpse's birth certificate, and I could see right there they're dead. When in reality, the best test for life is a heartbeat. It's breathing, right? It's healthy brain function. Real life in Jesus isn't summed up in a prayer. It starts with a conversation in prayer. There's no doubt, but it never ends there. Not when it's real. And so this this warning, it should jar us awake if we're sleeping, and at the same time, it shouldn't paralyze us. The author tells us we can have hope. Look down at verse 9. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It's here we see the author's pastoral heart. You know, he just had one of the harshest reality warnings. He smacked down on this church. And it's the only time in the whole book of Hebrews he calls them beloved. The only time. On one of the strongest warnings, he goes, ah, but you, beloved, loved ones, ones I so deeply care about. I feel sure of better things. It's not like there aren't some signs of life here in this congregation. He has a level of confidence of better things for them. And so if you're anything like me at this point, I want to know, and you want to know how you can be sure of better things too, right? I want this author, if he was here today speaking to every single one of us, and through God's word, he is speaking to every single one of us. I want to know how I can be sure of better things too. In the midst of a life that wrestles through stunted growth, that is scared to death sometimes of artificial growth, well, first we need to examine the evidence. You see, the person, like I said, who I'm most concerned about is the person who just throws this warning off with no care or concern. This isn't hyperbolic, 
okay? No thoughtful theologian has ever said this is hyperbolic, meaning that this is just an exaggeration to scare them. God works through means just as he works through ends and caring and cultivating his people in the faith. You see, the person who's shrugging off this warning, his arms crossed or her eyes heavy and you're dazing out, wake up. If you come to church and the most annoying time in the service is the sermon, I'm sorry, (laughs) for one, but two, check your heart. If you don't care to hear what God is saying in here, then there's something deeply wrong. Examine the evidence. Whereas those of you who are concerned about this, those of you who hear this warning and think, "Ah, am I a lazy Christian? Is my faith real? Should I confess to God that I've been avoiding him this whole time and been playing a game? The very fact that you're asking this question is actually a sign of healthy growth. You have ears to hear the word of God and the warning that it proclaims. Remember, the point of this warning isn't, just, isn't to scare us, but to push us into greater growth, to wake us up. So examine the evidence of your own heart. Second, fight the laziness. Fight it. You know, our calling here is to grow up, but this doesn't just happen. Like in the case in the rest of life, there has to be healthy inputs to get healthy output, right? Look back at five, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, where he says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature are those who have trained their powers of discernment through constant practice. I mean, interesting language, don't you think? This language of training in the midst of all of this. They aren't just being fed, but they're they're practicing feeding themselves. The gospel, as I said, is opposed to earning God's grace ever, but it's not opposed to effort in the Christian life. The word for constant practice in our text is the Greek word gymnasio, okay? If, if you sounds familiar, it should. It's the gym, it's the, the amphitheater, the time where the athletes would train and work towards growing in their physical abilities for the great race that was before them. Paul uses this regularly throughout his letters. It's rigorous discipline and intentional practice. We can't just ignore what we don't understand, what we don't want to understand because of what it calls us to at times. But we must fight the laziness and be active listeners. This is a key word even in counseling. Um, Active listening is being engaged in the conversation. So many times when we're in conversations with people, we're not listening to what they're saying. We're listening and trying to think of what we're going to say in response, right? We've been in so many conversations. It's like they they totally missed what you just said because they were preparing the whole time in their minds what they were about to say. Fight the laziness and be active listeners, engaging what we're hearing from God's word and then living it out. Fake Christians never grow up. You know, after uh, Allie gave birth, my wife gave birth to uh, our daughter. I got to be careful how I say that. After Allie gave birth to my wife. After my wife, Allie, gave birth to our daughter, Ava, those first two weeks are critical. You have milestones for growth, right? It's like, okay, she has to be past birth weight after two weeks, so make sure you're feeding her well. If she isn't past her birth weight, these certain growth markers, something is terribly, terribly wrong. 
And we might have to supplement in a different way. We have to be aware, very intentional, that growth is happening in a healthy way. Same in our spiritual lives. You have to fight the laziness. You have to be aware, watching your life, watching and digging into the gospel all the more, understanding who Jesus is and what he's done and the depths of how that impacts your life. Well, lastly, we grow together. So not only do we examine the evidence and we fight the laziness, but we grow together. What's one of the greatest evidences of growth? Growing with others. This isn't an isolated faith where it's just me and Jesus and I get to do whatever I want. No, we never see that in Scripture, ever. That's a hyper-individualism that comes from our culture, and we want to say, yay, I hate all those hypocrites. I'm too good for them, and it becomes arrogant. So watch it. But growing with others, beloved one another's, and be kind to one another's, enduring over time, the same grace you have been given on no merit of your own, you now learn to extend to others because of Jesus, such that your relationships become enduring, In the midst of pain, hardship, suffering, and brokenness, you stick by them as God sticks by you. Look in verse 10, chapter 6, what he says. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. The author, he highlights that it's this consistent engagement in the local church in tangible ways that gave him confidence. Like we said, at the end of the day, it's ultimately God who knows, but here he has assurance of better things, confidence, because of their engagement in the local church with one another. They're living out the grace that's been given them. God won't overlook their work. That means doing. God won't overlook their service. That means doing. And their care for each other. doing, doing, doing in the community of those beings who are centered in Jesus Christ. This is an outward representation, a hint of the assurance of things to come. And every time, if we look actually at God's character, if we look at his personhood, we see that loving the church is closely connected with loving God, right? The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus is encountered by the resurrected Christ. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? No. He says, Paul, or actually Saul at this point. Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Me. The way we care for one another is a representation on how we love God. There's this intimate interconnection between Jesus and his church. And if we can't love the church, then we have to ask the question if we really love Jesus. And he wants each one of us, every single one of us, look at those words, and we desire each one of you, not just collective, but individual actually here, to have the same genuine faith, the same earnestness. Real faith requires real community, and you can never grow alone, okay? You won't survive. We have to grow together. Now, I know you have a few questions. I'm probably more than a few, but there's one in particular that I think is pertinent before we close. And you may ask, Gabe, hey, 
I thought salvation was by faith alone and Christ alone. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and now you're saying that might not be enough. Is Christianity schizophrenic, you know? Multiple personalities here? No. Because the Bible has always pointed to the fact that true faith results in new life. Always. It's a marker, an affirmation that God is working in our lives, that the gospel has become real to you. Yeah, it's at different pacing in different lives, but still growth in the new life in Christ over time. You see, the gospel begins with the one true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, out of the overflow of his goodness, creating a good world. And yet the first couple, Adam and Eve, after being created, pushed their creator away. And we, just like Adam and Eve, ever since have been pushing God out of the picture. Even though... God designed us. We think we know how to better live our lives. Yeah, 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 that's old. That's old school. He doesn't know how to live in modern times. This is the lie we tell ourselves. And this is the language of sin, missing the mark of God's design for our life. And as we live in sin, pushing him away, God didn't give up on us. This is the beauty of the gospel. But pursued us. We see it as he pursues us in Noah, He pursued us in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, in the nation of Israel. And finally, most beautifully, always pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, believe it or not, this was always part of God's plan. And God would enter his created world to show us just how much he loved us, just how good and how great he really is. So Jesus lived the life we were designed to live, died the death we deserved to die when we sinned against an infinite God and rose again three days later as an affirmation of his defeat of death and sin that we might have a hope of resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him are the words of Jesus himself. And so then he descended to the right hand of the Father as our great high priest and sent the Holy Spirit to now dwell in and among us and those who proclaim Jesus Christ as the deliverer, their savior, and the leader, the Lord of their lives. This is the church. And the Holy Spirit grows Christians into people more like Jesus. If the Holy Spirit resides in you, this will happen. But fake Christians never grow up. We can hear the gospel, cognitively affirm it, but never really trust it. We can say we trust him and our lives never change. And I want to close with this quick story. It's the story of the famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the late 19th century. His wife actually for two years sat underneath his preaching. The gospel was proclaimed on a regular basis. And she would even pray that people would come to know Jesus in the service. (laughs) Lord, may you convert them. May you let them see the beauty of the gospel. And she would see those who wrestled with alcoholism come to know Christ and the joy in their life, and then she would be envious. She'd be angry because she was so unhappy, so broken inside. She was faking it, and she was praying for people until she finally grew up. And this is what she writes. I recall sitting in the study at 57 Victoria Road, and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin, and I shall always remember Martin saying, as he looked through his books, read this. 
He gave me John Engel James's The Anxious Inquirer Directive. I've never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all my sins away. There at last I found release. I was happy. Maybe this morning you aren't sure. Now's the time to start fresh. Stop worrying about your reputation. Whatever's going on in your life, this is too big. Start refocusing on Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our God in heaven who sympathizes with our weaknesses, understands our temptations. Jesus knows exactly how you feel and he's willing and ready to forgive. Fake Christians never grow up. Have you examined the evidence? Are you fighting laziness? Are you growing together with other believers? Let's pray. Father, this is heavy. Um, Even as I preach and even as I walk through God's word, your word, I feel the great need to just reevaluate my own life, to examine the evidence in my own heart. Whatever barriers we have in our lives this morning, break them down. May we see Jesus for who he is and may we see who we are, really. Sinners in need of grace. Your free gift through Jesus Christ. And may we trust in the death of Jesus Christ as sufficient for covering all our sin and guiding us in the way everlasting. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.